This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of the Nori Carbon Removal Marketplace and the head of creative and marketing here. Today I have with me Paul Hawken, author of many books, including Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming, and his latest, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Thanks for being on the show, Paul. Total pleasure. Thank you so much, Ross. I am so happy to have you here. I got to see you speak at TED Countdown in Detroit, which was quite an event. And Drawdown was one of the first books. It might even be the first book that I read when I got into climate as a professional. And it uh, really shaped quite a lot about how I think it was a great anthological view of all of the solutions available, or many of them, for those who care about climate change and how to address it. And then Regeneration, your newest book, it has a similar kind of overview, anthology-esque approach to the myriad solutions that are being developed right now. I see a lot of continuity between these two works, but also a lot of differences. How do you conceptualize your choosing to write another enormous book on a very similar topic? A good question. Well, Drawdown emerged actually as an idea in 2001, not the title, not the book itself, but in 2001, after the third assessment from the IPCC came out, it became blaringly obvious and glaringly, I should say, but that people didn't know what to do and that there was really no place where people could go and research or read or understand what the solutions were. Second of all, there was nobody naming the goal. And I just felt then and now, actually, people still don't name the goal you know, net zero is not a goal. I mean, it, it'd be like if I'm going from here to New York and I get to the continental divide, say, hey, I'm here. No, you're not. It's just a threshold. So net zero is a threshold, you know, decarbonization, not a goal. You know, I mean, that's a process, you know, for sure. But, and even we can talk about carbon removal, not a good goal. Okay. So I want to name the goal, which is to reverse global warming. Can we just, you know, put that stake in the ground so we have that expansive sense of what we want to do as a civilization. Second, I asked NGOs, universities, friends at universities and institutes, you know, to basically map, measure, and model the most hundred substantive solutions to reversing global warming. So it was the, the goal, reversing, and then the solutions. And for two, three years, I did that and mentioned it. And people said, great idea. We don't do that or, you know, things like that. And uh, nobody wanted to do it. And so in 2013, I read Bill McKibben's piece, Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. I think that was in Rolling Stone. And what he'd done is Mark Campanale, who has Carbon Tracker in London, had basically analyzed the balance sheets of every coal, gas, and oil company in the world and uh, said, basically, those assets, you know, their reserves couldn't be assets because if they burned, we would be basically Venus. So, you know, how could it be assets? What Bill did in his piece in Rolling Stone is set a match to the assets. 
and it was terrifying. It was global warming. It was terrifying, the math, you know. And I had people coming up to me, Ross, and who said, it's game over. And uh, I'm going to move to, you know, British Columbia, take the kids. <laughs> I mean, like, hang on. We're, it's over. We're done. We've, oh, we failed. I told that to you. Is that who? <laughs> yeah. And so I just felt like, wow, if, when sometimes, you know, I, I've never been an alcoholic or an addict. So, but I know people who've been in, you know, AA. And actually, one of the hallmarks of that is to give up, to surrender, to, you know, say, look at, I, you know, hello, my name is Paul. I'm an alcoholic or whatever. But I felt like when you give up on something that actually is an opening as opposed to a closure. And I felt that, you know, so I saw that saw it as an opening for a drawdown and decided to do it myself. Now I say myself, actually, there's dozens and dozens of people, but to initiate it. And I didn't know how to do it very clearly, but I just gathered people, you know, Amanda Ravenhill and Chad Frischman and Zeke Hausfather and and then 66 different researchers from all over the world, all six continents except Antarctica, and who were postdocs or, you know, PhDs or whatever. And we started making a list of the solutions and we had a hat in the office. Like I think we put, you know, we think of a solution, paper cup to Starbucks, <laughs> put it in, <laughs> you know, but just whatever it was, we start, and then we started to go through it and winnow it into what were substantive solutions. And again, the idea was to map, measure, and model the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. And, and away we went. When we got down to about 100 or so, we started to, to model them. Um, probably had the biggest, we were, you know, broke. We had the biggest Excel spreadsheet in the world that, you know, if you just whisper it at it, it would break down completely and have to restart it. I mean, it's just huge models. And I give Chad Fishman a whole lot of credit for those models. And out it came. And, but I knew as a writer, as an author, that when you do a book, you have to stay in your lane. Mm. If you're going to write, you know, a bodice ripper, you know, book, you don't talk about philosophy. <laughs> and when so in this one, time is bodice ripper coming out though. You're at home. You're not traveling a lot. Uh, you write that. And I'll get to that. I'll get to that. But I think, but the point being is that these are the, the, the most substantive solutions, but they're global hmm. and they didn't take in social justice. They didn't take in, into account culture. They didn't take into account gender. They didn't take into account, you know, colonization. They didn't, take into account so many other things, you know. And furthermore, there's no such thing as a global solution because there's no global. They're all local. Causes are local and so are the cures. And so I knew that. And, and the reason I always knew before it was even not just completed, Drawdown's writing, I knew I was going to do a regeneration, that it was the sequel. Because really... If you're not talking about the biosphere and regenerating what has been lost, you know, and damaged, you know, whether it's land or rivers or whether it's desert, you know, desertification, deserts, you know, and certainly farms or, you know, industrial agriculture, then you're not serious, you know, because then and now there is the climate, what's called the climate tunnel syndrome, which is basically the idea that somehow if we get the carbon thing right, that we're good to go and we get a hall pass to the 21st, 22nd century. It's like, 
no, you don't. And please do it. And we need to do it. No question. It's just imperative. But uh, so regeneration was really sort of stepping back and looking at it from a broader perspective, you know, which is how to bring back life. In other words, if you're not create, creating an increasing amount of life on earth, then what are you doing? What are you doing? Because you, there's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground there where you can say, oh, I'm not creating more life, but I'm not taking more life. Yes, you are. And so that applies, of course, to agriculture specifically, profoundly. But in all other human endeavors, that applies. And so that was why regeneration was on, was always in my mind as the sequel. Mm. It's such a heavy cognitive load to transform everything about your life. If you're in a difficult marriage and you think there's one key thing uh, stopping you from having a healthy marriage, that seems achievable. If that's you need to change your entire personality and how you relate and everything else, that actually probably is what you need to do to fix the marriage. But uh, it's, it's a much more daunting step. I imagine just focusing on the carbon math is a simple story. It's misleading in many ways, too, because there are several overlapping ecological crises happening, you know, concurrently. But you think that's actually going to mislead us or maybe it already has misled us? Yeah, it's, it's, it's created what this, it's called the carbon tunnel syndrome, which is this narrow focus. You know, you see that in, especially in the tech industry, you know, the idea that tech is the savior, that now we have AI and tech, you know, we're going to fix it. And the very verb is wrong, fix. You don't fix nature. <laughs> uh, you create the conditions for regeneration. You know, you don't come in, you know, the, the idea that, humankind, you know, sort of understands better than the living world, you know, is kind of a vanity that has brought us to this point. And which is we've been taking, 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 you know, extractive economy, everybody knows that. But the fact is that we've lost half of all life on the planet, biomass, life in all forms in the last 200 years. And the rate is increasing right now. And so that's what I'm saying. You can look at, you know, 2050 projections, IEA, this, that, World Bank, we can get, you know, net zero by 2050 if we do X, Y, Z, good, 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 good. Now, do a 180 and look at our forests, our lands, our waters, our oceans, our people, human health, poverty, inequity, injustice. Look at our mega forests, you know, all five of them, you know, look, I mean, look what happened to the boreal this year, the boreal forest this year, you know, in Canada, you know, that's a regime shift. That's not a fire. So, so unless we have a more expansive view, expansive meaning holistic, that is to say the whole tamale, which is called planet Earth, I feel like we get into these things like direct air capture, like, okay, it's a very male thing with all due respect to our gender to think that, oh, we'll fix this. <laughs> and then, you know, how you have Occidental Petroleum announcing, you know, last week was it or whatever it was that they're going to build, you know, this one, the first $1 billion director capture plant in Hector County, Texas, that will sequester or remove, as some people say, but it was 500,000, you know, tons of CO2 per year at a cost of $300 million uh, per year operating costs, which is, you have to think about 1 billion capital costs, 300 million operating costs, 500,000 tons, which is 360 seconds of global emission. 
360 seconds of global emissions for a billion. And you just think like what a billion dollars would do for so many aspects of the living world or for poverty or for equity or for, you know, for forests, for the mega forests, you know, I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling that there's this allocation of capital and everybody's jumping on the bandwagon because it's like, you know, people think, oh, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to make money. And these companies are, you know, going up in value, you know, the director capture companies and so forth. And to me, it's just absolutely ludicrous. I was so interested to hear you say this because regeneration, I don't think mentions much about industrial carbon removal until there's an appendix where I think you mentioned something very similar to what you just said. Whereas when I compare that with Drawdown, Drawdown had a much more ecumenical focus where tech did have a clear role to play. And some of this, this could be quite helpful in conjunction with more natural climate solutions. It seems that you've soured on that over time, or maybe I misread your original uh, book here. But what happened in the past couple of years that caused you to, to revise this thought? There's nothing wrong with technology per se, but when technology starts to breathe its own exhaust, there is something wrong with it, you know, which is to think that solely that somehow it's going to do something. The fact is that we don't want to remove carbon. We want to change the flow of carbon. So just the fact that people using the term removal, like removing from what? That means the atmosphere is different than the biosphere, which is absolutely not true. They're one thing. Just like you have gas in your lungs, right? It's a gaseous thing and you have, you know, and you have in your material. Okay, so the earth has, you know, a gaseous expression, you know, 15 miles at the most, I mean, in terms of functionally protective of the, of the earth. And then we have the planet itself, you know, in terms of living matter and geology and water. Okay. So just that, that idea that we're going to remove it, others, the climate, and that the whole, the, 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 the language around it, like we're going to fix climate. We have, you know, we're going to fight climate. We have to fight climate change. All those terms are the language that have basically emblematic of how the mindset of othering people, cultures, place, nature, the world, which is the hallmark of Western deterministic science has brought us to this situation we're in today. And so to use that same mindset of othering uh, is the cause, it's not the cure. And that's what, it's not the technique, which is technology. It's not that technology is the thing. It's like, to what end? To what end? Is it synchronous? Is it harmonious, you know, to the living world? Or is it mind over? Is it trying to dominate? Is it trying to fix in this case and so forth? And that's where it goes wrong. Mm -hmm. There's actually a lot of terminological back and forth within the carbon removal community. Many think that more temporary carbon storage should not qualify as true removal because it's in the fast carbon cycle and it's going through soil and forest and going back to the atmosphere or oceans in a pretty quick cycle. But a lot of people think that carbon removal should refer to lithospheric storage where it's going back in a similar sink as it emitted from. So fossil uh, emissions should go back into the lithosphere in probably the same reserve spot that it came out of. And I think removal in that case is probably an appropriate term. Do you disagree with that? It's, it's appropriate in terms of the function, but it's inappropriate in terms of understanding the flow of carbon, hmm. which is that, and, uh, and furthermore, 
like even at the DAX best case of $200 a ton, just removing last year's carbon 2022 would cost the world $5, billion, $5 trillion, okay? So again, you think, okay, $5 trillion, what could we do <laughs> with $5 trillion given all the other modalities, you know? And the idea that somehow the carbon cycle, you know, which you referred to is, is not adequate to the task at hand, I would argue against that one too. The carbon cycle is supposed to be a cycle. It, and, and my new book is called Carbon, the, you know, the Book of Life, but it, it's all about the flow of carbon. And that's what we have to look at. And yes, have we subverted, diverted? Have we definitely, you know, by you know, burning fossil fuels and so forth, you know, old, old trees and animals, you know, and rapidly changed, you know, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Of course, you know, that's known, but I'm just trying to get back to the language here, Ross, and that, that is that we have, we are at a crisis of, of, I would just say, I just don't think very, very few people understand the enormity of the crisis that we're in right now. And it's okay. Maybe it'd be a bad thing if they all knew at the same time. I'm not sure. But the fact is that a less than 1% of people on the planet today doing anything at all whatsoever about climate. Okay. Less than 1%. It's so much less that it's just scary. Now, why? And that's really what I want to get to here as opposed to parsing this technology versus that one. And the fact is, after 50 years of being in the public sphere, we have to ask ourselves, are 99.5% of, of the world stupid and sensitive and don't care? Or is the narrative that's been used by the climate movement right up until today absolutely causing that distancing and that you know ignoring and that like, oh, I hope they figure it out because I don't know what to do and I don't have any role in this and I don't even understand what they're talking about when they're talking about net zero and decarbonization and DAC and this and that. It doesn't mean anything to the vast majority of people in the world. And furthermore, the, the, the original rhetoric about current, you know, future existential threat, this poses a future existential threat to the world. Well, for sure, we can say today it's a current existential threat. But the fact is that five, at least 5 billion people wake up every single morning. It's probably more than that. And the first thing they think about is current existential threat. It's not about future existential threat. And so if the climate movement is talking about future threat and not seeing that actually climate solutions, the solutions that are in drawdown, that are in regeneration and many other, well, proposals that exist right now, if we don't see that they absolutely address current existential threat, housing, food security, security, education, and warmth, you know, equity, that they do. And yet somehow the money that, you know, is going to things that basically are concentrating capital in the world as opposed to absolutely starting to, even, even carbon offsets is just, it's painful. You saw the Guardian piece, 87% of them are probably junk. Junk, not just, you know, it'll, it'll not... I mean, junk means junk. I mean, it's like, and even worse than junk, they cause harm. Now, you could argue that one, say, well, that was just this study and not that study. That's one NGO and the Guardian altogether. But the point being is, it's pretty much true. And so again, you have a $2 billion industry. Who's making the money? 
I mean, it's in the north. It's in concentrations of capital. It's you know, and it's the money is not going to the whole of the planet, to the global south, to people who need it. The five point one billion people who wake up every morning with current existential threat and the golden pathway to reversing global warming is to serve humanity. And you serve humanity by restoring, renewing, regenerating the biosphere on all, all levels. How might we operationalize that and change the approach to offsetting? You have in the book a uh, phrase onsetting or term onsetting that you'd, you'd like to catch on. Is that, is that how you might change the framing here? Yeah, because offsets, offsetting is just a gerbil wheel. Just a gerbil wheel. That's all it is. It's like, I'm going to admit, and then I'm going to buy an offset. Let's just say that offset was actually genuine. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. even even if temporal, okay, like 30 year, 40 or whatever. Okay, it's temporal. Got that. But even were that to be the case, you know, nothing's changed. And it basically, it is a hall pass for polluters and for people who are exploiting the world and extracting more to keep going. And so onset means if, like when I fly, I do 5X. Now that's, I mean, j j just, you get this thing like 56 kilograms, you know, you buy a ticket and it says that's, you know, the jet A fuel carbon content that was emitted from, you know, take off to landing. That isn't, what about the plane? What about the people? What about the airport? What about the transport? What about the hotel? What about the highways? What about, it's just, it's a ridiculous number. And not only ridiculous, but as you know very well, I mean, these Delta and these things are buying offsets at, you know, $2 a ton or $3 a ton from God knows who and doing what. But, <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. When you commoditize and you monetize when you you're that way, you know, you're right back where you started, which is you're selling the earth to people. That's what you're doing, you know? And it's like, can we just step back from that? And so I fly very rarely now. When I do, I do 5X. That's an onset, which is, I have a lot of past emissions to make up for, you know? And I'm not even sure 5X makes up for the emissions from a, a single flight. I'm not sure it does, really. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the offset world is just, it's crook in every, every way. Now, Look, at there's some amazing things going on there too, like with TNC and I forget what the organization is in Tanzania, I think Tanzania, and doing with Hazda lands there, you know, which is pretty big. I think they're as big as half of England. I mean, it's a huge tract of land. And people who, Hazda tribes people, who are actually illegally cutting logs and doing things, you know, to support themselves are now basically wardens, you know, they're guarding their land and they're the last hunter gathering culture in the world. And now they're protecting themselves There's cultural pride. They're restored that to me call it offset onset, whatever you want to call it. That is really excellent. So I'm not just blanket, you know, blanket to condemning onsets, but they're just very rare where they actually do what they set out to do. We in Nori mostly work with farmers right now trying to store soil carbon. Is there anything that you've uh, seen in your long experience in the environmental movement and around uh, voluntary carbon markets that might help us do things in a way that would be compatible with your thinking here? 
Sure. I mean, my thinking is to make sure people understand that carbon is the metric, not the purpose. Carbon is the metric, okay. not the purpose. Okay. The purpose of regenerative agriculture is to restore life to the soil. Carbon is obviously the measure of that. Life and carbon are, you know, inseparable. All life forms are carbon based. So you see things like indigo and ag and others and so forth. And now you're seeing Bayer, Monsanto, you're seeing Cargill, you're seeing Syngenta, you're seeing Corteva all get in to this idea of regenerative ag with this very, very small singular focus on carbon. And there's rhetoric about other things, you know, the Syngenta website about regenerative agriculture is one of the best I've ever seen until it gets down to the very bottom and said it, with appropriate use of chemical fertilizers, you know, pesticides and herbicides. It's like, <laughs> this is a small print on the bottom of the website. And so the, 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 the focus on carbon, uh, as you know, an outcome uh, for farmers is to me sort of missing the point. And the point is to restore soil health. That is in the farmer's interest, by the way, of course, you know, in terms of water retention, help plant, plant health, you know, and then whoever eats the plant, people or animals, uh, uh, you know, not killing the pollinators, you know, what a great idea that is, you know. And then not using herbicides, you know, to basically desiccate the crop, you know, whether it's wheat or barley or rapeseed, et cetera. The, you know, most of the glyphosate that's in our baby food, in our children, in breast milk, in dust, in everything is coming from desiccation of paraquat dicamba glyphosate that's used to desiccate crops because you do get an increased yield if you speed up the ripening uh, of a commodity crop. But, you know, so... So you can have a practice where you got more carbon in your soil. And by the way, you know, when I harvest it, I'm going to kill, you know, birds, insects. And we just don't know the final result of glyphosate in our bloodstream and almost everybody in the world today. So, you know, that's why I think the focus on carbon itself now as a metric, as something to be fungible, that is to say, hey, we've got some over here. Do you want to buy it? Okay. But what's going on? Is it really? <clears throat> is it really what we want to accomplish, the carbon itself? Or are we using it really as an accurate measure of an overall change in that farm, in the soil, you know, and everything from springtails to, you know, <laughs> to, to pollinators to everything is, is, it's a system, you know? And so I just think that systemic, emphasis should be go along with carbon metrics in farms so that there is that validation as opposed to just carbon itself. Mm -hmm. Things <laughs> you take for granted, and maybe there's disagreement about to what degree carbon in soil is an adequate proxy for other types of ecosystem benefits. And maybe, maybe that is a really tight proxy and maybe it's looser than one might hope. But just doing one thing correctly and measuring one thing successfully is extremely challenging. Also having to take into account something like biodiversity, which measuring that is a whole minefield too, as I'm sure you, you've seen, water, things like that. And then somehow bundling this into an asset that the average person who buys an offset, even well-informed ESG professionals are buying junk 
And they're, they're mostly just trained to think in terms of a ton is a ton. The duration doesn't really matter. Is an avoidance right. the same as a removal uh, or sequestration or however you want to call it? This is not well understood. We've trained people with bad carbon math for a very long time. So introducing increasing complexity here, I think what you're asking for is essentially a spiritual revolution for the planet. And we probably need one. No, but... I, I, I mean, I agree with everything you've just said so forth, you know. But it's not about measurement. It's about practice. It's practice. That's what it's about. And, okay, are the farms, you know, using neonicotinoids? Okay, you can say, look, if you're using neonics, it's, I'm sorry, we don't care how much carbon you've increased it by because you have a, a, a systemic pesticide that's killing pollinators and birds. You know, other than that, <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mrs. Lincoln, you know, I mean, so you, there's things you can do that just like, these are thresholds. You can't measure, that, you know, changes in moisture content over time. I mean, the farmer is going to notice it and measure it and so forth. That's fine. And so that's not something, that's just an outcome again. Outcome is simply the more life in the soil being, is, is going to attract more moisture and retain more moisture. We know that. But that's about practices. You know, is the land covered? Do, is there live roots in the, in the land and so forth? And these are checklists. And, and the farmer can just say yes or no, or I'm working on it. And it's not like you're going to say you're out, you're, you know. But there's some things you can say, look, we do not approve of glyphosate, whether it's in any shape, manner, or form. And so forth. if you're using it, well, in, or dicamba or whatever, Paraquat, that's it. If you, that's it. We're not going to use, thank you, but get your money someplace else, but not from Nori. You know, and I think you can do it with neonics, you know, neonics and so forth. I think you can do it with that. And I think you can definitely call out in a positive way people who are planting their fence lines, doing prairie strips, you know, whatever, to increase, you know, biodiversity and really, you know, the bringing back, you know, populations of beneficials, whether they be or insects and so forth. So I think you can call that out and say our farm, you know, farmer X and state Y is doing this and this and so forth. And then you can make it known to the farmers and so forth that these are things we really love to see. Let's be positive about this. These things, come on, you wrinkle your nose on you know, nicotinoids and glyphosate, that kind of paraquad. So like, you know, no, no, thank you. Sell your carbon to somebody else. <laughs> We're not going to be part of that because that's just industrial agriculture in, in drag, in disguise, you know. I mean, and it is not actually truly regenerative. If you think agribusiness is just terrible for the planet in general, changing some of those practices could be some of the highest impact things one could do. Do you not think so? Give me an example. I think even moving from conventional ag to regenerative light, I mean, if you compare it to a permaculturalist living on an acre, there's no comparison to row cropping in the corn belt. It's almost a different thing entirely by kind, but surely moving agribusiness towards more regenerative-esque practices is a good thing. And you are seeing companies move in. It's probably some of it's camouflage. Some of it is sincere. Some of it's driven by bottom line and not some sort of spiritual connection to the earth. Well, I think on net, it probably is good. Yeah. I don't use the word you talk, use the second time you use spiritual. It's like, uh, uh, I think everybody has a spiritual life, whether they know it or not. And, you know, so honor that. I don't use that as a, <laughs> oh, I'm as sorry. A, 
Tell, tell, tell me how, how you would say it then. I'll, I'll gladly adopt Well, it. spiritual sounds like amorphous and I'm actually very, very hands-on down to earth, mm -hmm. you know, practical and pragmatic, you know, in my discussion. Yeah. Uh, so um, look, this is what I suggest and I'm doing it for two of the biggest food companies in the world. So I, I know, which is which, what you, what I think you need to do is say, look, these are the principles and they're regenerative, these are principles. And this is what these principles mean. Okay, practice is wherever you're starting, wherever you are right now, you know, you have 5,000 acres in Iowa and corn and, you know, you live in a toxic environment and you can't even drink your own well water. Okay, that's where you are. But this is where we need to go. And each farmer, she or he is going to have to figure out whether they want to, first of all, and then how to get there. It's not like if you're doing this, you're X'd out. It's not binary. It's actually a process. As I say, it's a flow. And so practices that say would typify, you know, what Gabe and Brown and others do, you know, and so forth, which are kind of like, you know, the rock stars of regenerative agriculture. And they're all over the place. And I used them when I started Erwan in, you know, in the 60s, I was working with regenerative farmers. Okay. But they they were there then and they're the, they're here now in more so. And you're seeing this movement. For Nori, I just feel like it's saying like these are this is where we want to go. We want to work with you in the and, and by the way, we can get you money for you know, measurable changes in carbon uh, and so forth. And uh, who knows, you know, at some point, maybe you can get foundations or family funds or others, maybe ESG companies um, to even pay more if people are doing, you know, prairie strips and, you know, you know hedgerows and fence line planning and, you know, other practices, you know, and forsaking all form of herbicide, of having live roots in the soil, of not just having cover crops, but always having cover on the land so the land never sees the sun. Uh, and, you know, which is, you know, preventing erosion and feeding the crops and you get somebody goes to in-farm fertility, well, that's going to be, you know, <laughs> hit the bell. <laughs> I mean, but the point being is that you're really putting out there what Nari is about, the commitment it has, the direction it wants to go. And you're there as a partner to farmers, you know, to help them to, to be, you know, a cheerleader. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, here's some extra income, by the way, for practices that do increase carbon in the soil and so forth. We, I hope that's helpful to you in terms of continuing this journey to make your farm less toxic, if, if not non-toxic, you know, more productive, that you make more money, you save money, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what you hear from every regenerative farmer is they're more profitable, without exception, the ones who, you know, getting there, that canyon, you know, that from where they are, you know, being squeezed by prices and commodity companies and so forth, and getting to that regen side is difficult, you know, because, you know, they're all addicted to practices that uh, they can't get out of easily. Appreciate the advice. I'll be sure to share it. I'd also like to ask for advice. Many of our listeners are in the carbon removal community. Many people are doing enhanced rock weathering, ocean alkalinity enhancement, direct air capture. That is a space that we roll in quite frequently. And we are anticipating that the costs will come down, cost curves will come down as they have in other spaces like solar. The grid's going to clean up. It's going to change the equation here. 
hopefully nuclear fusion comes online. God, please don't take the bait on that one, though, because that's going to derail the entire rest of the conversation. But what advice would you have for them? Do you think they should stop trying to make more engineered carbon removal solutions even work? If any, if, uh, you know, enhanced weathering all of that are all part of natural processes. Okay, mm -hmm. so, you know. It's sort of like a hybrid is often what people thumbs say up. around here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thumbs up to all that. No question about it, you know, and that is an acceleration of a natural process, you know, so, hey, can we get in here? Can we help? Can we get the stuff and we'll spread it around either on the land or, you know, and on coastal areas? No question. When you get to direct air capture, I would I would challenge one physicist anywhere in the world to show me where Moore's law applies to direct air capture. Hmm. It won't. It can't. And that's different, you know, in looking at things where, you know, there is going to be economies of scale developed over time uh, because of the fact is there's more customers, the customers are closer to source, you know, I mean, there's techniques and so forth. I can see that happening and being very, very valuable in terms of carbon removal. I still wouldn't use the term removal. You know, I just feel like uh, you're not removing carbon, you're just changing where it is. So that's that's what I'm talking about. I'm an English major, so I get the, I find words important, you know, because I feel like people say, "Oh, it's gone." No, it's not. It's actually which you made a very good point, but it's actually where it came from. So it's bringing carbon back home. What that's a very different way of speaking about it than removing it, and so forth. So that's why I take a little bit of exception to the term, because it's actually inaccurate. Uh, you know, and uh, so, uh, but I, when it comes to director capture and bundling it in with other other solutions, I say, well, you show me the Moore's law here, because it's about basically fluid dynamics, four parts per ten thousand. We're going to bring it down into something, and okay, you can't change the cost on that very much. You can change the energetic cost. That is how much energy is required. You can change the source of energy. For sure, it could be nuclear, it can be, you know, coal, it could be renewal, uh, renewables, etc. Okay, but now you're going to liquefy it. Show me the Moore's law of liquefaction from the absorbance. I'm, I'm all ears. I, I would love to see the breakthrough. Now that you've liquefied it, show me the Moore's law of pumping liquids into depleted oil wells, which is what Occidental Pete's going to do, or in pipelines that go who knows how far how far away into geological formations, you know, like there is no such thing as a Moore's law in these areas, you know, and you, you know so that's why I say DAC is to me is it's a dead end, it's a dead financial dead end, mm -hmm. and all the belief in in the world it, it is not going to change the physicality of that, you know, in other words that's just physics, you know, so. That's why I, I do draw a line. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to get so many emails for this episode, which is good. That's engagement. So that's, that's good for its own sake, I think. Are there other uh, types of carbon sequestration that you think are financial or otherwise dead ends? Dead ends? Uh, I, th I think more in terms of possibility instead of dead ends. I'm not here to call things out. I'm here to think about what's possible. Uh, I think about Inventwood, which is a company in Maryland, you know, and basically invented by uh, Chinese scientists, uh, uh, Lang Binghu, uh, who 
got his PhD in nanotechnology when he was 20 at UCLA and then went to Stanford for his postdoc and then went to University of Maryland and has 10 years of RPE grants. And the grants were to transform wood uh, into a substance, invent wood. He calls it metal wood, M-E-T-T-L-E as well, metal wood. Um, that basically is uh, two times stronger than steel, wow. uh, um, one sixth the weight and one half the cost and doesn't burn. Now to me, that is using nature because it's pure wood and there's a process of re removing the lignin and the hemicellulose uh, and some of the cellulose and then compressing it under heat Okay, and I wish I had what I had in my desk. I could show you a piece. But the point being is that that can replace steel. It can you can make I beams out of it. You could make a Tesla out of it. You can make paneling out. Of it. You can whatever wood is used for, and metal and aluminum for that matter. Uh, you can use uh, invent wood. And the DOE just gave it or granted, I think, 20 or $25 million to build the first factory, which is being built in North Carolina. See, that to me is what I'm focusing on is possibility, not, you know, I will call out things which I think you got to be kidding people. And it's, for me, Ross, I do the math. It's about math. It's not about belief. You know, I mean, we said when we did Drawdown, in God we trust all others bring data. Okay, so that's my thing about direct air capture. Bring me the data on Moore's law here. No one's using that term, but they're invoking it. They're, they're implying that it's there somehow. This can get down to $200 or $100 or whatever a ton, you know? And I'm saying, I'm all ears. <laughs> but, but I wanna see the data, not the belief. But so I think about things that are actually making a huge difference uh, in the world and using the principles of biology or the, or the, you know, the living world uh, as a way to reimagine our relationship to it. Uh, and going regenerative agriculture is simply a reimagination of our relationship between producing food uh, and, and then feeding the world as well. Right now, we're feeding people. It's arguable how the quality of the food, but let's put that aside for a minute. Um, but we're not feeding the earth. And that uh, an agricultural system that actually feeds the mother, which is the earth, which is, you know, is going to be one that endures, that produces better food. And we know now that the, 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 the food that comes out of really rich, healthy soils is a rich, healthy plant that has more phytochemicals in it and is far more nourishing for whether it's children, goats, or people. You know, I mean, the fact is we just, we know that. I mean, this is happening at the Rockefeller Institute um, and there's 10,000 ingredients in, in, in broccoli, not 17, not 42, 10,000 different ones. We have no idea actually what's in our food and how that relates to our microbiome. But we do know that we go to a farming system that creates very healthy, vibrant soil, which is a whole mystery in itself, you know, down below. I mean, we was like, well, what's going on? We really don't know, but we do know healthy soil. And the plants that come out of it 
are going to be far different in terms of levels and types of nutrients that we haven't even understood or measured yet. And so it's it's this is a win 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 thing. And yeah, it's gonna be very difficult for farmers to make that transition. We we get that. And that's why I love what you're doing because like can we help? You know, that's what you're doing. Can we it's not about a business. Of course it's a business, but I mean it's about can we help? Can we be helpful? But I think the most helpful thing you can do is to really, you know, provide a sensibility to the farmer, she or her or him or whatever it is, family, you know, wherever they are about the possibilities that lie ahead if they wish, if they can, if they maybe just take 500 acres over here if they have a huge farm and, or 100 acres and just try things out and see how it works and, you know, experiment. Don't do anything that's going to threaten your livelihood or your income stream, but step by step, you know. That's, that's a nice thing. I appreciate the kind words. And you may get your wish, by the way. I know some very thoughtful direct air capture people. So you may receive some of this data that you're looking for, whether or not you buy it. It's a different kind of question here. Paul, I'm really grateful for you being here. You have a lot of resources on your website too. I imagine you'd like to drive people to your website, books. Is there anything you'd like people to, to do to engage with you? Well, the website regeneration.org uh, has uh, solutions, uh, many of which were not in Drawdown. Uh, and, but what's interesting is that what I wanted to do is combine the solution with a sense of agency. The, so when you look at a solution, it's really about what you can do as an individual, as a family, as a neighborhood, as a community, uh, as a town, a city, as a county, as a province, as a company, as a corporation. And not all of them have things that you can do on those different levels of agency. But what it allows somebody to do is to understand where the points of intervention are to actually enact and that solution. And people ask me all the time, you know, what should I do? And I'm going, you know, look at a list like that. And when you find something that lights you up because you want to know more about it or you've always wanted to do it or you actually know a lot about it maybe and you want to do it, uh, that's what you should do. Don't do a should, do a want. In other words, I want to do this. It just lights me up, you know? Great, that's what you should do, you know? Because it's you and that's where you're going to be most effective. And so Nexus on regeneration.org is just saying, look, it's like, here, here's a huge buffet <laughs> of possibility. And is there something there that you want to get involved with, you know, uh, whether you're in fifth grade or whether uh, you're ESG department of a big corporation? Thanks so much for being here, Paul. I appreciate you being a, a good sport with all these direct carbon sequestration slash removal slash, am I even allowed to say removal at this point anymore? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for having a real conversation about this stuff. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.